If you would, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We have a special guest with us. I have not yet met him, but I've been informed that a longtime pastor from Honduras is visiting with us today. 28 years in the same church, a very missional church. They had 14 ministries uh, outside of their church to other nations. Pastor Allen, are you with us this morning? Could you stand? Yes, it's good to have you. Let's welcome Pastor Allen. Bill's son, Billy, brought him with us to us this morning, and Billy is a as a, goes to Honduras regularly uh, on mission trips and helps with their water purification and other things. So uh, we certainly um, esteem you for what you do as well. I also want to thank Andrea and her daughters for serving us uh, so ably. Wonderful meal yesterday morning at the men's prayer breakfast. We had a great turnout, and they had to get out of bed early on a cold Saturday morning And she's preparing to go on a mission trip herself. So thank you for your sacrifice to us. Well, let's pray and we'll get into uh, our our text in Luke 18. Father, we thank you that we have been entrusted with this glorious gospel, the gospel of Luke. And one of the challenges for us is to see this gospel with fresh eyes. Sometimes we are so familiar with passages that... It dulls us, Lord, to the glory that is found in the passage. Oh, God, awaken us today as we see a a very well-known parable. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear in a fresh way today. I pray that every believer today would have their faith, hope, and love nourished and strengthened by this text today. And I pray for those who've never trusted Christ Come to Him in desperation and repentance and faith that today they would turn from their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We pray Your name would be hallowed in this preached word today. And we ask this in the name of our Christ. Amen. This week we celebrate October 31st. It's a very important day on our calendar every year. But not because of Halloween. October 31st is important to us as Protestants. Because in particular on October the 31st, 1517, the Reformation began. October 31st was All Saints Eve, All Hallows Eve. On All Saints Day the pilgrims would pass by the relics of saints, okay? Relics were uh, remains of particular saints or things they wore or touched or used, and they would appeal to the excess merits of the saints. What are excess merits? Uh, Things they did above and beyond what they needed to attain sainthood. What they needed to attain heaven. And so they would appeal to these excess merits in hope of satisfying God's righteous requirements. They did this year after year after year. But 1517 was different. And there was a couple of reasons for that. First of all, there was a a man named Martin Luther. 
who through the study of scriptures was coming to a different conviction about how one is made right with God than what the Roman Catholic Church officially taught. But there was a second reason as well uh, why 1517 was so important. An artist was painting a ceiling. And it wasn't just any artist. And it wasn't just any ceiling. The artist was Michelangelo. And he didn't come cheap. And the ceiling was the Sistine Chapel. It's St. Peter's Basilica. Pope Leo X's extravagant taste in art had all but bankrupted the Vatican treasury. And then you add into the fact that there was a man. This is the perfect storm. There was a man named Albert of Mines who wanted a bishop position. He'd already had two at too young an age, and here he wants a third, but he needed the Pope's special dispensation to get it. Well, the fortunate thing is you have Albert and Pope Leo X, who are both businessmen. And so they agree upon a price so that Albert could get his new bishop position. The problem was, Albert was wealthy, but he was wealthy in land, not in cash. But here steps up a man named Johann Tetzel, a monk. Johann Tetzel comes up with an idea that will give Albert the cash he needs to procure his bishop position. He devises a scheme involving the sale of indulgences. What is an indulgence? It was a certificate you could purchase for yourself or for someone else to procure less time in purgatory. Or simply just to remit your debt, your sin debt. You could purchase your forgiveness with the sale of indulgences. And so he has this unprecedented sale all over uh, Europe and Germany, raising money for Albert. In fact, he had some really neat little ditties that he would sing in his little sermonettes. One would, that was famously sung, he would say, a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. He didn't even require you to confess your sin or repent. Money would do. And Martin Luther had had enough. And so on October 31st, 1517, he goes to the church at Wittenberg and he posts 95 theses. He's not looking to uh, leave the Roman Catholic Church. He just wants a debate. He's being a good Catholic. But he recognizes this is wrong. This is in opposition to what the Bible teaches about how one is made right with God. Essentially, Martin Luther was studying the Apostle Paul. And he began to realize that salvation, that is our justification, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Okay? He had been studying the Apostle Paul. 
But we need to recognize Paul's doctrine of justification didn't come out of thin air. In fact, Paul will appeal all the way back to Genesis 15 to say we've always been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In fact, Paul essentially builds on what Jesus teaches about justification by faith. And perhaps there's no better text in the gospel that clearly, more clearly reveals what Jesus teaches about justification than our present passage. In fact, it's a parable. But parables teach us a great deal about the economy of God. Now, in our present parable, verses 9 to 14, Luke is giving us a second consecutive parable about prayer, but with a different emphasis. Uh, In the first parable that we saw last week, we learned that persistence in prayer reveals what we believe about God. Okay? The parable today is a bit different. Because in this parable, we also learn that our prayers reveal what we believe about ourselves. In particular, what we believe about ourselves before a holy God. All right? And so this parable is addressing the implied question, what counts as righteousness before a holy God? That is, how can a sinner... Be made right with a God who is infinite in His holiness. Infinite in His justice. And what we're going to see in this parable is that Jesus is repudiating. Absolutely repudiating any idea that we can be saved by any merit of our own. Now, as He begins this parable, we see at the very front... Two different kinds of people. Two different kinds of people. Look with me in verse 9. He often has just two characters in his parable. He also told this parable. So it's, a, it's very clear that he tells this parable immediately after telling the parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Bible study principle 101. The Bible does not mean what you want it to mean. The Bible means what the author intended it to mean, okay? And he tells us at the very front why he tells this parable. He's speaking about those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Now, who is that? That is every single person who's ever lived who does not bow the knee to King Jesus. It's that simple. Somehow you think in the day of judgment, God's going to exonerate you. You are trusting in some kind of merit or righteousness of your own. And so he's speaking this parable to those who are self-righteous. And self-righteousness always breeds contempt. It always breeds contempt for those who have not attained to your particular standard, whatever that standard may be. In fact, 
the way we know we are acting self-righteousness is that we have a critical spirit. Now, there's some people whose lives are unrepentantly characterized as being just critical, just critical spirit. Those who, whose lives are somehow under the dominion of criticism. You know people like that. Every time you talk to them, negative, 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 critical, 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 slander, slander, gossip, gossip. But all of us are in some way indicted by this. Now, as a believer, you're not under the dominion of this sin, but we know we are being self-righteous when we have a critical spirit. Because what we're saying is that this person that I'm criticizing has not attained to my standard. He has not met um, my particular um, standard in this area. I've attained it, but this person hasn't. Therefore, I criticize that person. Jesus is talking about the self-righteous who show others contempt because they cannot match their standard. And critical spirits are always the symptom of this self-righteousness. In other words, he's telling this parable for those who don't need mercy. Why would you need mercy if you're already righteous? If you're already good enough? He's telling this story for those who do not believe they will need mercy when the day Jesus returns, or as verse 8 says, when the Son of Man comes. Well, look with me in verse 10. He gets into the parable there. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Which, if you know anything about the tax collectors, you're already shocked that he's in the temple. What are people like this doing in the temple? People like this should not be in the temple. They don't belong there. These two people represent uh, opposites, polar opposites in the first century Jewish world. All right? The Pharisees belonged to the most pious religious movement. They were highly respected. A lot of times we think that the Pharisees, because they loved money, and that's what the Scripture says about them, were wealthy. Most of them were not wealthy. Most of them were middle class. We can relate to the Pharisees. In fact, it was a lay movement. The Pharisees was not official position in the temple, if you will. Uh, it was a lay movement akin to some, maybe perhaps the Gideons. We highly esteem the Gideons. Uh, it was a back to God, back to scripture movement. That was the Pharisees. They were highly respected. But then there's tax collectors. Uh, perhaps the most hated people on the planet were the tax collectors. As we've seen in our study of Luke, uh, the Rome imposed taxes on its conquered people, all right? And what they would do is they would farm out these taxes to contractors. And then the contractors would hire these kind of Jewish subordinates who would go out and do the dirty work. And the way they would extort more than what Rome required, they would extort money from you. But it was legal. It was legal extortion. These were legal thieves. They were, they were considered traitors. They were considered the dirt of the earth. So you got this highly esteemed man and you have this most hated of all people. 
No Pharisee would ever sell out his people. In fact, the Pharisees themselves were victims of the tax collectors. They had to pay the taxes as well. And so, to read this through first century Jewish eyes, all right, as we're hearing this story, you and I would have a favorable attitude towards the Pharisees. We're so used to Jesus jumping on them that we kind of have a critical, you know, bent towards the Pharisees. But in that day, the Pharisees were highly esteemed. And we would have a less than positive attitude, let's just say, towards the tax collectors. And Jesus knew his audience was predisposed to say about the fact that this Pharisee, he's a good man. This is a good man in the temple. And we would have said the same thing. To put it another way, if there were two boys in my neighborhood and one was like the Pharisee and one was like the tax collector, I would tell my two sons, you can play with this little Pharisee boy, but you stay away from this tax collector. Or if you're a wife and your, your husband wants to go out with his friends, you can hang out with these Pharisee guys, but I don't want you at all hanging out with these tax collector, you know, traitors. That's the perspective that would have been uh, in the first century. So you have two completely different people. And out of this comes two completely different prayers. Look with me in verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He essentially is looking in the mirror and singing, how great thou art. That's what he's doing. Note, uh, he thanks God, though. Now, I've heard people uh, say that this was a sincere, um, you know, expression of gratitude. I don't think it's that clear. In fact, I don't really think he is being sincere when he thanks God. Religious people know how to use language to impress other religious people. How do I know? I'm often one of them. You can memorize enough terms and memorize enough language and scripture to really impress the religious people. In fact, if you look over in chapter 16, verse 15, here's what Jesus said, or Luke says about the Pharisees. Or Jesus, through Luke's pen, you are those who justify yourselves before men. In other words, their religious acts were done to impress other people. And so I don't really think he's being sincere when he's thanking God. He's just sounding really pious for those who are listening. Not only that, 
it literally says uh, he prayed to himself. I don't think the ESV picks it up as well as uh, the original language does. It says, standing by himself, he prayed thus. The King James Version says he prayed thus with himself. I think that's a better translation. He prayed with himself. He's talking to himself. He's looking up to God, but he's contemplating himself. The New American Standard translates it this way. And he was praying thus to himself. So he's looking up, but he's focused inwardly. Okay? In fact, he mentions God one time. But he mentions himself, I, five times in two verses. And so I don't think there's sincerity here. But this is what self-righteousness does. It's inwardly focused. Um, Instead of looking up in desperation, it's focused inwardly. Okay? It's self-absorption. And in fact, I think that's the reason, just as a side, we have so many relational problems in our families and in our churches. The reason we have problems in relationships is because we are so sinfully self-absorbed. So someone uh, doesn't speak to me, and so I get vindictive towards that person instead of pursuing them in love. Okay, someone doesn't give me the attention that I'm due. I get angry, I get bitter, and I retreat from that person. It's kind of kind of a passive aggressiveness. It's because we're so prone to turn in on ourselves. It's what they say in the South is navel gazing. Turned in on one's self. This person is self-absorbed. But this person... This Pharisee, in particular, is trusting in his self-righteousness to exonerate him in the day of judgment. And the Pharisees believed there was a coming day of judgment. Okay? And in particular, this self-righteousness expresses itself in three ways. First of all, there's a comparative Self-righteousness, a comparative blamelessness, if you will. Now, what do I mean? Well, he's comparing himself. Notice in the text, verse 11. He says, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I'm not like these men. And then he proceeds to compare himself to pagans. To outright pagans. This is a common strategy of self-justification, isn't it? We have this sinister ability to tolerate spiritual mediocrity in our lives. And unconfessed and unrepentant sin in our lives by comparing ourselves to someone who's worse than us. Well, I may not seek the face of God every day. I may not be faithful to the local body, the people of God. I may not give sacrificially. I may not share my faith. But I'm not like the guys I work with. Those guys are out all night. Partying. I'm at home with my family. 
We have such a way of, of justifying ourselves by comparing ourselves to others. Secondly, not only was there a comparative uprightness, there's a negative uprightness. Now, what do I mean by that? He's focused on what he doesn't do. He says, I don't do these things. I'm not an extortioner. I don't commit adultery. I don't steal and extort money from people like this tax collector. In other words, he's focused on the sins of commission that he would never commit. Okay? Sins of commission are those things like adultery. All right? Very active and very uh, self-evident sins that we commit. He would never do those things. But that can be a smokescreen. All right? That can be a smokescreen in particular to cover the sins of omission that we do commit. And the most prevalent sin of omission that we commit in the community of faith is that we fail to love. We fail to love our mates. We fail to love our children in a gospel way. We fail to love people in our church. I mean, oftentimes I'll see people here who never reach out to other people. They're certainly not going to reach out to visitors. That's the sin of omission, in particular love. Well, I'm just shy. Well, get over it. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And love is a supernatural fruit for someone who has the Holy Spirit who's omnipotent. You're saying that the omnipotent Holy Spirit cannot overcome your shyness? In fact, you'd look in chapter 11, verse 42. Chapter 11, verse 42. Jesus hits this very hard when he says, Woe to you Pharisees, you tithe and mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. So you're focused on all these things you do But you don't love. In fact, the Apostle Paul dealt with that very issue. It's a chapter we often read in our weddings. He's dealing with spiritual gifts, but it has universal application. Just hear a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians 13. A passage you're very familiar with, but sometimes our familiarity breeds contempt. Hear what he says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But have not love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You could be the most eloquent pontificator of the things of God in the history of the church. And if you're not loving, you're just a clanging cymbal. You're just noise. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, you are the sage of First Baptist Church of Fisherville. In fact, you're the sage of the Southern Baptist Convention and the evangelical movement in general. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, you don't just tithe. You live on your tithe. 
All right? You give away 90%. And if I deliver up my body to be burned, you are willing to be a martyr for your faith. All right? You go on every mission trip, you don't even get the tetanus shot. You're willing to just lay it on. You're willing to... You, you, when you, and when you get there, it's going to be a closed country, but you're going to stand up on a soapbox and say, Jesus is Lord. And let the chips fall where they may. And he says, if you do that, but you have not love, you gain nothing. In other words, you're not saved. Because love is the fruit of the Spirit. It's a necessary evidence that you have been born again. It's not just for some superior believer, some kind of special forces Christian. This is basic Christianity. And the Pharisees were focused on what they didn't do. And they had completely lost sight of what you must do to evidence that you have been saved. It was a negative Obedience. So there was a comparative uprightness. There's this uh, negative uprightness. But thirdly, we also see a legalistic uprightness. Note, me, note with me in verse 12. So I fast, Lord. I fast twice a week. Impressive. I give tithes of all that I get. He's rehearsing to God his spiritual biography. Uh, Incidentally, he fasts twice a week, which means he fasts some hundred times a year. What, 50 weeks in a year, 52 weeks in a year. So he fasted a hundred times a year, and the law only required that you fast one day per year, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16. This man fasted 100 times more than the law required. That's impressive. He blows all of us away. There is not a person in here as outwardly righteous and committed to the law as the Pharisee. And remember Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom. Well, we're already done, all right? And not only did he fast twice a week, he also... Tithe more than the law required. The, the law does, uh, required certain crops, okay, to be tithed. Uh, Deuteronomy 14, verse 22, if you're taking notes. But as we saw in chapter 11, uh, these guys, they tithed even garden herbs. Man, these guys are giving machines. You know, legalism, going above what God requires, being stricter than God, that's what legalism is thinking that somehow you impress him. Legalism is often a way of avoiding guilt. Okay? Um, We focus on areas that we don't really feel tempted in. Areas that really, you know, appeal to our strengths, like self-discipline. This man was very self-disciplined. And they become this smokescreen for covering the areas that really express our sin nature. That's what legalism does. And note, I want you to note this, what is glaringly absent in this prayer. There's no sense of need. There's no evidence that this man 
is broken over his sin. That's what's missing in this prayer. And could it be that this parable follows the previous parable of the persistent widow who came desperately to the unjust judge? Could it be that this parable follows that one? Because there's nothing that provokes within us our sense of need more than our sin and our need for mercy. And so if you are sitting here today and there is no doxological desperation that's evident in your life, we can all grow in our awareness of our need, to be sure. We can all grow in our fervency to pray, to be sure. But if it's not evident in your life, you're more like the Pharisee here than perhaps you even realize. This man was not needy. If our lives are not characterized with doxological desperation, we're like this self-righteous man. And how does it manifest itself in our lives? Well, when we compare ourselves to others and we criticize those who don't attain to our standard, that's Phariseeism, that's self-righteousness. When we rest content on the sins of commission, I don't get drunk, I don't run around on my family, and yet... Glaringly absent is the sin of omission, the failure to love my, my brother and sister in the church, my failure to love my neighbor who is lost and needs the gospel, my failure to love my spouse, whatever that may be. When we are impressed and think others should be impressed by what we do for God and what we do for our church, and there's no doxological desperation. That's self-righteousness. That's Phariseeism. But the tax collector was completely different than the Pharisee. And if you're sitting in the first century now, this, this is raising the hair on the back of your head. Look with me in verse 13. But the tax collector... Standing far off. He won't even come close to the people of God. He's broken. He feels dirty. Unworthy. Standing far off. Would not even lift up his eyes. To heaven. But he beat his breast saying. God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. For the tax collector, there's no comparisons. He has no righteousness to compare with other people. There is nothing to the equation here, to this prayer that he brings, but his sin. That's where this man is. In fact, some believe uh, that this verse 13 is the reason the Christian church has prayed with our eyes closed for the last 2,000 years because the Bible never commands us to pray with our eyes closed. In fact, in the Old Testament, here's how they would pray. For instance, Psalm 101 or 123 verse 1, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. They prayed with their eyes open, looking up to God in the heavens when they prayed. That was the Pharisee. 
There's nothing wrong with doing that. In fact, when you are driving down the road, please don't bow your head. And I think it's a good idea to pray with our eyes closed to to keep from distraction. But when I'm having my personal devotion, I don't typically close my eyes. Whether your eyes are open or not, it's irrelevant. But this man couldn't even look up. He couldn't even look up. He was so broken. He was desperate. That's where this man was. And what does he pray? Very short prayer. It's really the starting point of prayer, real prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I want to give you a Greek word. Don't do that often, but it's important for our text because the English translations do not bring it out. Hilaskomai. And I'm going to come back to it in a moment. H-I-L-A-S-K. O-M-A-I. Helaskomai. That's what the word means. It's a verb. Be merciful. Be merciful to me. Literally, that God would find a fitting sacrifice to atone for this man's sins. That's what he's literally praying. Be propitious towards me. The ESV nor the NAS rightly picks it up. Surprisingly, the Holman Christian Standard Bible does. Here's how the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates this. God, turn your wrath from me as a sinner. That's what he's praying, literally. Turn your wrath from me, a sinner. In fact, he calls himself the sinner. There's a definite article there in the original language. He is the sinner. Maybe he's heard people say it. Maybe he heard people say it when he walked into the temple. There is the sinner. And he says, turn your wrath from me. Be propitious towards me. And this posture makes all the difference in the world with regards to God's pronouncement on this man. And the Pharisees' Posture makes all the difference in the world with God's pronouncement upon him. In verse 14, we see two different pronouncements. Two different men, two different prayers, two different pronouncements. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. It's the same word Paul uses You're studying Romans, it's the same word. Studying Romans on Wednesday night, same word. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. What is justification? I'm going to give you a definition. I'm going to break it down real quickly. Justification is this. It's an act of God's grace whereby he pardons us of all of our sins. And accepts us as righteous in his sight. Only because of the righteousness of Christ. Which is imputed to us. And received by faith alone. Essentially. Justification is this. And we pictured it this morning in baptism. Justification is God. As a result of you being united to Christ by faith. 
looking at the judgment of Christ on the cross and seeing that now being credited to you. Okay? Christ died on the cross to take the punishment for sin. And now, because you have received Him by faith and been united to Him, His punishment is credited to you. You deserve punishment. Christ took the punishment. And His righteousness that He fulfilled in keeping the law is now credited to you. And this alien righteousness is now yours by faith. So that when God looks at you, He doesn't see your self-righteousness and your lovelessness. He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ and He sees that the debt has been paid. It is finished, paid in full. The wrath has been propitiated, satisfied in Christ. That's what it means to be justified. He said this tax collector went justified, but not the Pharisee. The sinner justified. The righteous one condemned. That's the opposite of justification. Condemnation. Condemnation. This is utterly scandalous. The modern Pharisee would be welcomed in any self-respecting religious organization in any church. He would be given responsibilities within the church. You know, it's surprising how much ego and pride we will put up with in the church if the man is clean living and he's benevolent with his money. That was the Pharisee. This parable is reversing the way we think. That's what he's doing. But that's what we need. We need to reverse the way we think. Because the natural way we think is misdirected. The way we think about God. The the way we think about ourselves. The way we think about others. The way we think about how to satisfy God's righteous requirements is misdirected. And that's why Jesus has come in the great reversal project. He's come to reverse that which is misdirected. Our fallen world and our fallen thinking is misdirected. And he's come in this great reversal project. In fact, notice in the last part of that verse, as we close here, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. That's not what we see today, is it? If you want to make an, if you really want to make it in life, you've got to have thousands of followers on your Twitter account. You've got to have thousands of people following you on Facebook. You have to have a, a writing deal. You need to brand yourself. And Southern Baptists are just as guilty. You go to a pastor's conference, the only ones there on the docket are megachurch preachers. Okay, now he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled in the day of judgment. That's the Pharisee. That's the self-righteous one. That's the one in here right now who's never bowed the knee to King Jesus. That's utter arrogance to think that you're going to stand before God and he's going to let you in because he's some unscrupulous janitor who just sweeps the dust underneath the, the rug at the end of the day. He says, but... Who, the one who humbles himself will be 
exalted. He's already said this very thing in chapter 14, verse 11. You think it's important? When Jesus repeats himself, that's pretty important. This is the great reversal that Jesus is bringing. I'm reading a book right now called What Sons Wish Their Fathers Had Taught Them. Highly recommend it. What Sons Wish Their Fathers Had Taught Them. You need to get that book if you have sons. Byron Yon is the one who wrote it. He's a pastor and his last name is Yon. That's a terrible last name for a pastor. (laughs) But it's a great book. And he says, normally, whatever your heart counsels you to do, you'd be well advised to do the exact opposite. Follow your heart. That's terrible advice. Your heart is sin-stained. It's filled with godless, babble-like motivations. He says, do the opposite. We say, live. The cross says, die. We say, defend. The cross says, lay down. We say, power. The cross says, humility. We say, vengeance. The cross says, forgiveness. We say indulgence. The cross says moderation. We say self. The cross says service. We say us. The cross says others. We say happiness. The cross says holiness. We say try harder. The cross says repent of trying. This explains the very reason we have such a hard time beholding the gospel's relevance. That's what he said. Because of our reverse way of thinking. But the gospel is relevant. In fact, it's the only relevant message. Every other message has a termination date. Do you understand that? Because that message is the message that's bringing in the enduring and eternal kingdom of God. The gospel message. But to see its relevance, you have to come to the end of yourself. You have to come like the tax collector. But that still begs the question. If God is holy and he must penalize sin because in his holiness he's just and he's good. Do you know the most dangerous thing about God is he's good? That's good because we're not. And and so if God is good and just and holy, how's he going to forgive us? How, How can God forgive us and remain who he is? Remember I gave you that word? He lasts go my. Have mercy on me. It's found only one other place in the New Testament. One other place. This very word. Hebrews 2 verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Here it is. To make propitiation. For the sins of his people. That's the verb. The tasker said be merciful. The verb is to make propitiation. The tasker said would you propitiate my sins. And God says I will in my son. 
That's how God can remain who He is as God and still save the sinner. That He might be just and the justifier. Christ Himself pays the sin debt. He takes the wrath. And that brings us to the most personal question I can ask you as we end this this morning. Where are you in that equation? Have you received atonement for sins? There's only two types of people. Those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Have you experienced forgiveness through the atonement that Christ offers? Are you still under the wrath of God? I would love to talk to you if you have questions about that. That is my pastoral privilege and pleasure to talk to people about how to be made right with God. And if you're a Christian here this morning... Does this text not provoke you to love and faith and hope in the risen Christ? Doesn't it provoke you to evangelize your lost neighbor so that he or she can cry what you once cried? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's pray.